That's good to have the kids around the table. Good to see you guys. Hope you've all enjoyed wishing your dads happy Father's Day. <laughs> um, uh, well, I've brought up lots of times. When God has me preach a text, he kind of makes me the guinea pig of the text, but I didn't really think it would be that, <laughs> that, uh, that stark and that obvious this week, but he's like, okay, I'm just going to make you sick, and then you're just going to have to deal with that. Um, <clears throat> but uh, God finds a way a lot of times to kind of lob to me what I'm having to deal, what I'm having to preach. And, uh, and I usually feel like uh, when he throws me the ball, uh, I don't even like know he's throwing it and I don't even swing. Uh, I just like totally miss the point uh, until somebody tells me or uh, until I'm preparing the sermon, I go, oh, uh, it's that kind of feeling where I just feel like God's like, I've been had, or in the words of Jerry Seinfeld, Noah, it's like, uh, <clears throat> It's like God is is uh, is catching me off guard, and I'm like Newman. <laughs> it's that that feeling. Um, but I thought about a few things in this text that I wanted to talk about, and one is uh, James is talking. We're going to talk about prayer today, and we're going to talk about sickness today. Uh, and there's some weird things going on in this text between sickness and sin. So I wanted to start with that for a minute before we talk about prayer. And that is that there's two kind of, there's two kind of connections here with sin and sickness. Uh, there's sickness that can lead to sin and there's sin that can lead to sickness. So there's sickness that can lead to sin and there's sin that can lead to sickness. Now, James is not, I'm just going to say right up front, James is not making these causal. It's not like all sickness is a result of sin, Right. Uh, that's not what he's saying. He's just saying that it is possible for sickness to lead to sin, just as it's possible for sin to lead to sickness. Um, so sickness leading to sin as the guinea pig who got sick this week, uh, I can testify to the fact that you sin more easily when you get sick because you're grumpy, because you don't feel good, because you feel like the world is unjust. I don't feel like I did anything to deserve getting sick. And yet here I am sick and it's just been harder for my whole family for the last three days because I'm pretty useless and I'm a little grumpy and I uh, am more short with people when I'm sick. And so I've realized that this is a very real thing that James is talking about, that sickness can lead to sin. Uh, I realized it when uh, out of nowhere, I came home when I was just starting to get sick and I thought I was in really good shape. I'd been working at the church. I had had a decent day and uh, one of the kids said something and I just immediately snapped at them. And I was just like, where did that come from? And like Megan was like, I haven't seen you do that in a long time. What's going on? And I was like, oh, sickness really can lead to sin. And so when, when James talks about prayer and he's talking about uh, the sin and the sickness together, uh, that can be one way that it happens. The other way um, is sin that leads to sickness. I think we can relate to this. Maybe you haven't gotten physically ill lately, but maybe you have a sin in your life that's led to sickness. Uh, I can testify to this personally with 
uh, phrases like worried yourself sick. Uh, I don't know if any of you guys have issues with anxiety. I know that a number of us deal with issues around obsessive compulsive anxiety. In our home lately, we've had actually a lot of uh, concern and from our kids lately. Just I think it's the public school uh, COVID protocols and then just our own sort of exacting as parents being like, wash your hands, you know, don't get, you know, da, da, da. and I've noticed that they're like, is it okay that I did this? Is it, I, I just did this. Is that okay? And I'm like, oh my gosh, you're becoming, I'm creating like a family of obsessive, compulsive, anxious warriors, right? And like that can make you sick, right? Now I'm not saying that like that's de facto a sin, like, you, you know, but I, what I am saying is that sometimes we we know when our anxiety is sinful. Uh, there's times when our anxiety is clearly not trusting God. It's clearly taking matters into our own hand. In fact, we've people pray over us and we reject their prayer because we say, no, I need to know for sure, right? I can't trust uh, I can't, I have to be in control. And so those kinds of sins can actually lead you to sickness. They can trap you. Uh, there's another, there's another kind of sin that I've observed leads to sickness, which is double-mindedness, right? So trying to play, play everything at the same time, uh, being two people, right? Being one person to one group of people, being another person to another group of people, not being able to make up your mind for so long that it actually makes you sick can be a form of double-mindedness. And then we know like the more obvious ones, the more obvious ones are, oh, alcoholism or drug use or sexual immorality or violence or vengeance. These are all like really clear biblical sins that definitely can lead to sickness, whether it's mental sickness or actually it starts to affect your body. Megan and I have been doing a lot of thinking and she's been doing a lot of work in her, uh, at her study at Portland Rescue Mission around how our, like our actual bodies, like neurochemically, like our, our actual physiology starts to get suppressed and affected by our thoughts, right? That's why um, in the Bible, we hear, keep your, hold your thoughts captive, you know? Um, so again, Sin does not always lead to sickness, just as sickness does not always lead to sin, but there is a connection to the, to the two. Um, so then what does James say when he starts off the text? He says, is any of you, if, is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. So there's just, you can read this and it's just a very obvious takeaway from the text, I think for me, is that what James is saying here is like, hey, you're upset? Pray. You're happy? Pray. You're sick? Pray. Like what's what's the bottom line? Be praying like live your life praying. And I thought it's as if God, Abba Father, is just saying to us all the time, talk to me, talk to me. Uh, in the end of chapter four of James, uh, or actually in the, the just the passage we read last week, uh, one through 12, if you just look in your Bible a little bit earlier, we had that we talked about the patience of the farmer and the prophet. And one of the things that James says in community is, 
don't don't grumble instead of grumbling this text is saying pray now what's the difference between grumbling and and praying to god i think grumbling is when you are saying things deciding that nothing can be done about them usually when we grumble it predisposes that we have no agency that I've decided that there's nothing else I can do. And that in fact, nothing can be done, which will help me. Grumbling is kind of a selfish way of giving up, right? So we just kind of air our stuff out on everybody because we've decided that nothing can be done anymore. We've decided that no matter what we do, nothing will work out. But prayer is an antidote to grumbling, not in that it will change our circumstances that second, but in that we can admit to ourselves, actually, something can be done. If I talk to God about what's going on in my life, I have to admit that he is all-powerful and that there is something he can do. So James, in a way here, is saying, even lift up your grumbling to God. Take it from grumbling to what we biblically call petition. Bring whatever you think can be fixed to the great fixer for all life. So with sickness on some level, I had to just say, okay, God, like I'm sleeping in the bed and Megan's sleeping on the couch. And we're trying not to get sick here. And there's nothing I can really do to not be sick. I have grumbled plenty and I'm realizing, and I'm convicted that I just need to take this to you and give it into your hands, realize something can be done. And you are the great healer, not stop praying for it, ask other people to pray for me. And then like, I'm better off just not grumbling about it anymore, right? Even like using the self-control to watch my heavy sighs, right? Or like all of these ways that we communicate to people that like, woe is me. And just realize like, I can take it to prayer and then I can move on. It's not, I'm still gonna feel kind of gross. Uh, I, I don't know what God's gonna do. But I'm living in relationship with God that he is my father and he is listening to me. Talk to me. So God's relationship uh, to Israel, in the frequent metaphor of his relationship to Israel is of marriage, right? So he, he makes a covenant with Israel, a covenant promise. And then throughout the Old Testament, God is referred to in such a way that he is like the 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 lover of Israel, the 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 husband or the or the bride or the husband, right, to Israel. In the New Testament with the church, we have that analogy used a lot too. Right? The church is the bride of Christ. What destroys marriages is not necessarily anger. It's not arguments. It's not fighting. What destroys marriage is a lack of communication, right? So you can, you can have a healthy marriage that has arguing, has some fighting, it even has anger, right, sometimes. But if you have a marriage that has no communication, that has apathy, that just decides, I can't do anything with this person, why am I even with them, right? You live separate lives. That's when a marriage counselor would say, your marriage is really close to ending, right? You've just decided to live completely separate lives. You're not talking 
to each other is what you hear marriage counselors most often say is the sign of a marriage that it's about to collapse. So we can use that same analogy with God with prayer. And we can realize, let's do like an inventory check. What is my prayer life with God? What is my health level of, quote, the marriage, the relationship? Am I communicating? Like God doesn't say you have to be happy all the time. God says, bring all of it to me and talk to me, right? Megan can deal with me coming home frustrated. She can deal with me coming home depressed. She can deal with my bipolar excitement and frustration and depression. And like, it might be hard sometimes, but she can deal with all of those things a lot. If in my excitement, I don't dismiss her. Or if in my depression, I don't blame her, right? So I can be excited and I can bring her into my excitement. But if I'm excited and I say, oh, sorry, I don't even have time for you. Got to go, honey. Like over and over and over again. That is us growing apart in the relationship, even though it seems like good times. What's happening is you're not bringing the other person into the good times. That's why James says, if anyone is happy, let him sing songs of praise, Keep the relationship in your happiness, just as you're trying to keep the relationship in your depression. I don't blame, if I don't blame her in depression, she can come alongside me in the depression. But if I'm finger pointing, I'm pushing her away. So the point is that I don't want to be removing myself from creating distance with my emotions. I want to be with my emotions, bringing us together. And it's the same thing with God. Okay. Uh, in the last, uh, in, in verses 1 through 12, uh, James brought up Job. And in this text, he's going to bring up Elijah. With Job, of course, we have a person who clearly was able and willing in his righteousness. He was a righteous man, and yet he brought all of his suffering. He brought all of his grumbling. He brought all of his complaining before the Lord and transformed it, not from a grumbling heart, but to a contending heart. He said, God, why has all of this happened to me? I need to hear from you because he knew that God could do something about it. Instead of his friends who didn't go to God with it and trying to diagnose the problem on their own. So Job takes his, 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 his frustrations, his pain, and he challenges them against the character of God. He says, God, I know who you are. Why are these things happening to me? And how do Job and God work it out? Uh, Tim Mackey in the Bible Project says that Job talks for 38 chapters. If you've read Job recently, it's a long slog through all of the suffering and the poetry and lament. And then after 38 chapters, God says, in effect, you think I'm asleep at the wheel? Let me tell you what you don't know, right? You think I'm asleep at the wheel? I've been here the whole time. I'm not an absent God. I am a God who is with every being on earth. He explains how he is with every animal. He's with every person. He's created the structure of the whole earth. He upholds the earth, including you and me. And then he says one of my favorite phrases uh, in the Bible, which is, 
Job 38, 4, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. You tell me, Job. You tell me. Do you know how I did all of this? So sit in your place and remember, I uphold everything. Hold on, guys. I'm going to mute and blow my nose again. <laughs> so James says in, in uh, verse 13, is any of you, if any among you in trouble, let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. So let's talk about what that prayer looks like. God is saying, just talk to me wherever you are at. Now let's talk about happiness for a second. Because I think actually a lot of us go to God when things are not working out well. I used to have this this thing where every time I used to fly quite a bit and every time the plane would come down for a landing, I would always, I said, everyone's a Christian when the plane is, is trying to land, right? Because you're like, pilot, just get me back on solid ground, right? Like everyone believes in God when they're just trying to get their body back on earth, right? Because there, there's no time when you feel more out of control then when you are in a, in a, especially when there's like a lot of turbulence or something, you're just like, just get me on the ground, right? Um, that It's not hard to be somebody who believes in a higher power when you feel totally out of control. But happiness can really get us in trouble, actually. The Bible warns a lot against times of comfort uh, as much as it does in times of trouble. So sickness and sin can lead us. Sin can lead us to sickness. Sickness can lead us to sin. But happiness, of course, can also lead us to sin. So when we say in prayer that God is saying, just talk to me, James is saying, is any happy? Is anyone among you happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Praise him for the glory he has given you in the happy times. Remember that God's still there in the happy times. In the times where you don't feel like you need him, he's still upholding you. In the times where... Uh, you have plenty and things are going well, that those are all a gift from him. In fact, they're an inheritance that he's given you to steward, just like the uh, the servants of the master who are given the talents, right? You Everything good in your life is given to you for a purpose to be a blessing for other, other people. And so James says, is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Praise him for the glory he has given you. And in when you when you take your happiness to God in praise, in a way, this helps make us all humble. Because I think it can be easy when things are going really well, or when we got that award, or when we got that raise, or whatever. We go, man, I am really something. Like, finally, I'm getting recognized for what I've always desired people to see about me right? Or finally, I, and, and we can get puffed up with that. And so to always turn that praise upward and to say, I am grateful, God, for the gift of the inheritance that you've given me. How can I steward this? And to sing songs of praise because songs of praise always have to come out of a place of gratitude. And so whether we're in happiness or in sickness, we're in this relationship with God. And we are opening us we are opening ourselves up anytime we're in prayer. We are opening ourselves up to the reality that God is with us at all times. So when we are not living prayerfully, that means that we have 
removed and turned our back to a God who is with us. God is not like gone when we don't feel him, hear him, uh, sense his blessing and prosperity on us. He's there all the time, everywhere, with every being, with every fabric of the universe, as Job shows. Uh, every rock, every mountain, every, he is upholding all of it. And when we feel alone, our back is turned to God. And we have, and what James is saying is turn back. Like you may still feel really lonely, but feel lonely with God, right? It doesn't take away the fact that like we are social beings and need other people, but at least admit that God is with you. And then he says to, to pray. So what does praying look like? In verses uh, uh, 17 and 18, or sorry, let me, let me back up here. Verses 15, he says, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person is powerful and effective. So how do we pray? How do we practice being in that relationship with God who is with us? Well, I think what these verses kind of show us is that to be praying in faith is to be vulnerable with God and each other, right? So we are to be, the prayers are to be offered up in faith. They're earnest prayers. They're prayers that are wholehearted. They're prayers that are looking for wisdom. They're not prayers that say, I know everything I need to know. And God, I'm just waiting for you to finally get on board with my good ideas, right? I'm just waiting, God, for you to back up what I've known for a long time. Any prayer is coming open-handed and it's saying, God, this is what I know. And I'm asking you for wisdom. Any prayer where we come to God with a predetermined waiting for him to get on our moving train is not a humble prayer. And man, I feel convicted and guilty of this all the time where I have said, okay, God, I've got a vision. This is what needs to happen. God, why haven't you gotten on board? Like where, where, why are you not doing my thing? Right? Like, I don't get it. I've done everything right. It's even in line with what you say biblically you want. And like, you're not getting on board. So I'm frustrated at you, God. And he says, and James is saying, look, man, you've got to offer it in faith and trust. You've got to be realized that you're a person who is confessing their sins, that you're a human being, and that you do not have God's perspective. So when we come in prayer, we're looking for wisdom. We're not presenting our wisdom and asking for a stamp of approval, right? We are looking for God's wisdom. We're trying to learn things in prayer. That's one way to think about it. If, if, if a prayer is a conversation, when I come to have a conversation, I'm looking for connection. I'm often looking for some kind of affirmation, but also I'm looking for a partner to help me figure something out, right? Anytime I come in a conversation with any of you guys, I am usually, you see me do this a lot. I'm like sussing out, like, let's figure this out together right? Help me. I can't figure this out alone. I'm a verbal processor. I'm somebody who figures things out on the fly with people in conversation, right? 
what if our prayer life looked like that, that with God? What if, what if prayer took me into the word and then the word took me into prayer and prayer took me into fellowship with other people and then it took me back and I'm going through this cycle of relating to God through the church community, through the fellowship, through the word and through my own times of silence and solitude or prayer or contending prayer with God. Like, I think all of us can grow tremendously in that and in the vulnerability of saying like, I'm not going to sequester myself off in those times, but I'm actually going to come to other people. And by the way, I've seen us grow in this. I've seen all of you guys grow in this. I'm saying, man, I've really been thinking about this. I want you guys to pray for this. Also, can you just help me? Like I'm really struggling with this. Uh, to come in humility with prayer, wholehearted. So wholehearted. Make sure your heart is in what you pray. We've all been in, we've all been discipled into forms of prayer in Christian culture that are very tepid, lukewarm, prescriptive models of prayer. Right, dear Jesus, please bless this food, help it to nourish our bodies in Jesus' name, Amen. Right. Uh, God, I pray that you bless my children and help them sleep well and have no nightmares uh, in Jesus' name, amen, right? Like we, we have these sort of prescribed because we do them as routines and we've liturgized them, right? But that doesn't take away the fact they might be good words, but they need to be wholehearted, right? Allow your prayer to be a conversation that's wholehearted. And kind of like we talked about with flipping the coin and seeing what comes up and how that makes you feel, like if you're not wholehearted in it, like earmark that, like, why can I not be wholehearted about this prayer? Like, why can my whole heart not be in praying, uh, whatever, whoever I'm praying for, maybe there's something blocking, maybe that relationship has some bad energy in it, and I need to go take care of that, right? Really listen to your heart when you're praying, because I, we would do this in a, in a conversation with each other, if our heart's not in it, you can tell so quickly in a conversation with somebody when they don't really want to be in the conversation or they don't even believe what they're saying, right? You don't think God can tell that. So come to him wholeheartedly. And basically what James is saying here is that that earnest wholehearted prayer is power prayer. Like that earnest wholehearted all in prayer is power prayer. Even if that's contending with God and saying, why God? Even if that's just going, I have nothing. Give me an answer, God. Just make it wholehearted. Make it earnest, bold with the right motivation. Let's look at this uh, verses 17 through 18. Why does he throw Elijah in here? Okay, he said prayer needs to be offered in faith. A prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. We've talked about that. A prayer of somebody who's going to confess their sins to each other and pray for each other. These are all things we've talked about in the nature of prayer. Now, why does he jump to Elijah? Let's read 17 and 18. He says, Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced crops. Let's do a little case study on Elijah for those who aren't familiar with the, the story of Elijah, need a little refresher. Uh, so Elijah was a, one of the very few people, probably one of the only ones we're told about, 
uh, who was in conversation with God at this time in Israel. So this was a really dark time in First Kings, the book of First Kings, where Israel had some really bad kings. Israel was worshiping other gods. This is God's own people. And that basically in their marriage, they've said, hey, let's make this a polyamorous situation, right? Like we're not just married to God. We're married to lots of things, right? Let's go ahead and worship these idols we call Baal. And like, we'll worship God too when we need to, but we're worshiping all of these things because we want it all. And Elijah is one of the very few people who's actually in conversation with God. So that's the first thing, right? Here is a man who's in conversation with God with us. He speaks to and hears from God in the actual passage. The, the king and the queen of Israel at this time are not in relationship with God. And that's crazy because if you look at the very first kings that were brought into the land of Israel, David is a great example he was like the closest person to God. The king of Israel was supposed to sort of exemplify this person that was always in relationship with God with us. And so God brings Elijah up, who is in relationship, who is to the God who is with Israel. And what does Elijah do? He prays for famine. He prays for famine for Israel. Why does James use this example? Like, this sounds really awful. Like, is, is Elijah just spiteful against his own people, against his own country? But Elijah's motivation is important here. And actually, the text reveals his motivation. So, yes, this passage, 17 and 18, is about power and about the power of prayer to change the weather, for instance, and to do all these things. But it's got to come from the right motivation. Elijah's desire is for turning back Israel. First Kings 18 37 says, these people, he says, uh, Elijah is so earnest precisely because he wants, quote, these people to know you, that you, O Lord, are God, and that you are turning their hearts back again. So it is really, I don't want to have to deal with being an Elijah type of prayer, right? I don't want to have a situation in my life where I have to pray the kind of prayer that Elijah prays. Because as a, as a fallen human being who is nowhere near the level of Elijah in terms of discipline and prophetic power and righteousness, it is really easy to fall off the razor's edge from praying for Israel's blessing by waking them up in praying for something like a famine and praying against them out of spite. Like my hat is off to Elijah that he could pray for a famine in a perfect motive, like in a motivation that is saying, I so want them to turn back to God that I will pray for a famine on the land so that these people will wake up and know Jesus again. Not because I want them to get what's coming to them, not because this king is so bad and he needs to die and I want vengeance on him, but because I want goodness again for Israel. And so from the right motivation with earnestness and boldness, God answers Elijah's prayer and he, he just, it's a prayer of absolute power because it is a prayer that is actually for the hope of Ahab 
King Ahab and Jezebel to turn and come back to God. After the rain comes, if you remember the story, Elijah gets the supernatural strength to run ahead of Ahab's chariots to see if Jezebel has come to her senses. Like that, he prays again for rain and he goes, okay, now that it's raining, I know this is the time when Jezebel could turn and see that God with us is for us and turn from the Baals and the idols and come back to God because she sees the power of her God her goodness. And so he gets the supernatural strength to run ahead of Ahab's chariots to see. And he comes up and a messenger is clearly not going to have it. And is and he he like hightails it right up to Jezebel. And then he's like, and turns around and just starts running the other way because he knows he's going to get killed. He got the answer from the messenger very clearly. They're going to kill him. Nothing has changed. But the reason he's running is because he so believes, he so wants to believe. His motivation is that people would change to know God. And so that should be our prayer in any prayer to be so earnest and bold and wholehearted that God has the power, even though Portland has not looked different than it's looked for the last two years, today, this morning, when I wake up, I can still pray for God's goodness in this city wholeheartedly and earnestly and wake up with the expectation that he will do a good work in this city and he will do it through me. How, how does that make it more real for us, right? When we've been struck with the malaise of the city and what we've gone through, maybe even though I've been working at a job that I just don't feel God's hand. Maybe I've been in a house or with my family and I just can't see God working to make a change. Can I have an Elijah-like prayer that is motivated by earnest, old motivation that God would bring his people back to him, that he would bring goodness, that he would bring rain, and that it would turn us can I actually have that kind of prayer? When I pray for healing, when I pray for healing for Opal this week, when I pray for healing for Ron this week, when I pray for healing for my own family and me this week, can I have that earnest, bold prayer with the right motivation that God is good to save and he is with us? And if it doesn't happen, can I keep going in that prayer? I think that's the huge test. I think that's the huge test. We get all revved up. Like you're like, oh my gosh, John asked me to pray. And I've got like this energy to do this prayer thing now. And then you get to like Wednesday and you're like, it ain't working. Nothing's changing. I'm done. Like I'm done with this kind of prayer. It's, it's charismatic Pentecostal thing. It's like, it must be a misreading of the text. Like God doesn't actually heal the sick this way. Like, I'll be honest with you. Like, I was reading this and I was like, anointing with oil by the elders. Like, does that still apply? Like, is that a thing I should be doing? And I remember there were some pastors that uh, were part of a group that we were meeting together. And they would go to one of the fellow uh, retired pastors, or I think it might have been a guy in one of their churches that was an elder. And he had cancer. And they would go every month and they would anoint him with oil and pray over him. It was beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful. It's not about whether or not we can decide whether it's effective and it works. 
to motivate whether we do it. That is up to God. And I think that's what's so difficult in our culture is we go, well, I'll take ibuprofen for my headache because it takes my headache away. But if I take ibuprofen and it doesn't take my headache away, I'm done with ibuprofen, right? And we treat prayer the exact same way. We say, if it's not effective today, then that's not a thing I can do prayer with. I've got to do something else to deal with that problem. God is not refuting that you should still take an ibuprofen to get rid of your headache. But he's saying, also pray right? He's saying, don't stop praying because you found something to solve your headache. Like that isn't what this text is about at all, but that's what we do. I think also with the anointing of the prayer, he's saying like, we live in a body, we have a physical body, and it is a key importance to the expression of our heart to other people. Like maybe we should as a church, come to each other to pray at the doorstep and front through the screen door at a family that has COVID to pray over them. Imagine what that could do, just the embodied presence of taking and sacrificing your time. Like these are beautiful things that James is recommending because they are participating in the relationship with God and they are, then they are participating as a church as an image of what God is already doing with us to each other. Guys, I did not put a clock, so I have no idea where I'm at with time, but I'm on my th third point, so um, I'll wrap up here. Uh, <clears throat> all right, this right, I've kind of already edged into this point. If we're motivated by praying for actual healing, whether that's spiritual healing in the case of Elijah and Jeze Jezebel, or if in the case of praying for the sick, that is just fundamentally different. We're putting things into the providence of God. We're praying with a wholehearted actual trust and belief. In some ways, by praying that God would restore humanity back to him, whether it's in the simple prayer of praying over an alcoholic and hoping that this time that God will change their trajectory, that God will bring them out of addiction, or whatever it is, when we pray wholeheartedly, basically we're saying this, when we pray, we're saying only God can do it. There's no other thing that can do this. Even if the, this is my deep seated spiritual belief. If God upholds all of existence, even if the ibuprofen takes care of my headache, God did that. Even if the ibuprofen takes care of my headache, God did that because he upholds all of existence. That's a fundamentally different way than we think about life. We separate the two, right? We separate all of it. But this text is saying it's all integrated with each other. Give credit to God when that headache goes away, right? Use that as an analogy for your life. What things are you doing that where you're saying, I found cures for this. I don't need to get involved. God only needs to get involved in the really crazy stuff, right? No, give thanks to God for everything that he's doing, every cure that he's bringing, every good thing that he's giving to you. And then give him credit where credit is due. Basically, we're saying this, when we pray and take the ibuprofen and then give credit to God, we're saying only God can bring me to health. And I'm just lucky enough to be in the room with him while it happens. That's a totally different posture of humility. Then the fast-paced, pop the pill, get it done, go out and do it on my own, because ultimately it, come down, it comes down to whether I'm strong enough, hard enough, fast enough 
to live this crazy life and get out on the other side. That is such a lonely, such a typical, such an American culture way of practicing our faith, and it's completely broken and bankrupt. We have to share these things with God, but not just with God. We have to share them with a good God. So this is another place we fall apart in prayer. We say, okay, John, I'm doing the prayer stuff. I'm, I pray. I know I'm supposed to. I even have like a routine. I do it every night or whatever. Like, you can't touch me. I've got that. But we have decided that there is some part of God that is not good. I've talked to lots of people who you'd call like an ex-evangelical, right? People have left the church. They have church hurt. And what is the phrase they always use? I can't believe in a God who. I can't believe in a God who. You will hear this. You've all heard this phrase. I can't believe in a God who uh, would hate gay people. I can't believe in a God who would uh, be... uh, want to uh, have pro-life, but then uh, condemn all these lives of people in the margins, these mothers who were abused. I can't believe in a God who would want to put that on them and have them raise this kid. I I can't believe in a God who in the Old Testament uh, had Israel kill all of these people, right? Like they have all these little narratives of all the bad press that they've compiled about God. They said, I can't believe in a God who X, here's my evidence. I'm done with this conversation, right? And they just kind of expect that to be the end because they've decided that this is who God is. He's not good, is what they're saying. He's not good. But God confesses to us of himself in the Bible who he is. Exodus 34, 6, we have the kids memorize this. I'm going to read it from the NLT because it's such a good translation here. It's so accessible. He goes, I'm Yahweh. He's speaking to Moses, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. This is the the complete goodness of God's character. His whole character is summed up. That is who God is. That is his name. And we need to realize that we, every time we pray, we have to reconcile the facts with the truth. We have to reconcile the reality on the ground as we can see it with who God actually says he is. And we have to say, God, in spite of all these things that are happening, I can believe in a God who is the God of Exodus 34, 6. I profess that I believe in that God and I challenge everything that's happening against a God who is that. Then I can come toe-to-toe with the church, with people who have said they're on God's side, but actually aren't on God's side. So I can come toe-to-toe with the church who said, I'm pro-life, but does not care for hurting mothers, and instead just pickets outside an abortion clinic, and then says, I've done my part. That is not the church. The church has to have a much more holistic sense of what it means to be pro-life. That's just one example, right? God, okay, this, I can't even get into this, but let's get into homosexuality just for one second, right? Okay, Paul talks about this, and he says, this is a sin. So Christians say, I have now permission to hate gay people. 
No, you don't. God is bringing you to be somebody like him, the God of compassion and mercy, slow to anger, filled with unfailing love and faithfulness, lavishing, like you don't. And so if we realize who God is, we can start to have so much better discernment. And if we realize who God is, we can bring our prayers to him in faith that he is a good God. All right, where am I? Talk to me. So when you leave today, let's practice this week talking to God and remember that he is for you, even when it doesn't look like it. I'm going to talk about Elijah's story just a little bit more here, because when, when James brings up something like Elijah, he's cueing. He's cueing for the Jewish Christians that are listening to this, a whole story for them to recollect that deepens everything. In 1 Kings 19, Elijah's gone through this whole thing. He's fleed from Jezebel. She didn't turn. Things didn't change from Elijah's righteous power prayer that could change the very weather itself, that he could be in the room with God when he brings fire down from heaven against the prophets of Baal, that he could be with God in the room as God does supernatural miracles over the weather. And still things don't change the way Elijah wants them to. And so he gets depressed and he says, God, I don't know what to do anymore. He runs off into the mountain. He hears the still small voice of God. The still small voice of God. And then he comes off the mountain and he says to God, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophet with the sword. And I, even I only had left. And they seek my life to take it away. This is like major woe is me. This is major how a lot of us feel when we come to prayer. And God has not answered our prayers for days and days, for months and months, for years and years, for decades. And we say, ah, I feel like not even praying today, God. And the Lord says to Elijah, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel, Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphath, and Abel Meloah, and you shall anoint the prophet in your place, and the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall put Jehu to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elijah put to death, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Now, what does any of that mean? Just kind of pick up the energy, the inertia that God's communicating. Nothing, nothing happening, nothing changing, no turning happening in Israel. And then suddenly, blah, like it all comes out. Suddenly, after sitting with the still small voice for what seems like an eternity, God does bring tremendous change. He brings vision. He brings things that will happen. He brings particulars. This is like super particular. Go change who's going to be king of the country. Go anoint a successor for you. And guess what? You're not alone, Elijah. There's 7,000 people. Like this is tremendous. And this is the hope that God brings for us as Christians. And it opens us up to something that is so important, which is to be praying as part of the community. Don't silo our, ourselves off into saying, I'm the last righteous person. I'm the only one after your heart, God. My vision is the only vision, and it needs to be my way. 
Why haven't you done it yet, God? Instead, come into community and seek wholeness for yourself and community. Because God's message to Elijah is, dude, stop it. You're not alone. You are not alone in this. And I have an answer for you. Don't suffer in silence. So I ran out of time, but we have a lot uh, that I can still talk about here uh, with how we intervene with each other. Maybe we'll do some of this in our cohorts. Uh, I do want to just look at a couple things. As we're praying, uh, let's not draw away from the sick. One of the big takeaways from this passage is that what happens when people are sick, people will come to pray for them. Culture is basically says, don't give time for the week because they don't advance you. They don't help you get where you want to go, right? But we as a church need to come to the sick, to the hurting, to the people on the margins and give them our time. I've seen us do this in tremendous ways. I think that we're doing really good on this. It's encouraging. Go to the sick in person. Intercessory prayer. If we're not, be praying more as intercessors, the righteous on behalf of the sick and the hurting and the sinful. This is a prayer that says the righteous prayer is powerful and effective, even for the unrighteous. I think sometimes we think that that's a bankrupt idea, that that's too mystical, that my righteous prayer cannot help somebody who's unrighteous, but James begs to differ. So your sibling is, doesn't know Jesus. Be the prayer of the righteous person. Be hopeful and wholehearted that they would know Jesus. And he ends with a sense of mission in verse 19 and 20. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the air of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. The church is meant to be a restorative community. The church is meant to be a place of comfort for people and a ministry of restoration. Uh, <clears throat> so just to conclude, uh, how, does, how does Jesus come into all of this, right? I always get to Jesus at the end. We haven't talked a lot about Jesus in this passage. Jesus' cross and resurrection are a gift that is meant for a response. Christianity, uh, in the last 50 years, largely has said Jesus' cross and resurrection are a gift, and whatever comes after that, great. No, his cross and resurrection are a gift meant for a response. And that's response for like at its deepest bedrock is to sustain a divine conversation with Jesus. Now what? Now what from the cross and resurrection? Talk to me. How does this make you feel that I am a God with you, that I won't leave you? That when you're hopeless, I've given you a reason to hope. Like take the cross of the resurrection deep in. But remember that the cross and the resurrection of Jesus are also just require us to be faithful. And what is faith? Hebrews 11 verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction 
of things not seen. That's that's like the challenge of prayer. We tend to decide God's not powerful, he's not present, or he's not good because we're looking at the scene to give us evidence. And God says, I've given you the community of believers. I've given you my word. I've given you my presence. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. Hopelessness is an enemy. From the, it's just from the pit of hell to try and distract you from the presence of God. But we live in this space where things are not seen. This is like what the Christian life is, and it's so difficult. I just want to close with this. I've been, I've been doing quite a bit of reading for class about the resurrection, and I've been really convicted that while we have a, while we have a cross up on uh, the front of our church, that of equal importance to the cross is the empty tomb. They, they can't be separated from each other. And so when we talk a lot about Jesus's death and atonement for our sins, and that is crucial, it means nothing if it's not followed by the resurrection. It is the hope of the resurrection that makes us people that can be joyful, that makes us people that are not defined by collective misery and collective sacrifice and collective, oh my gosh, I got to keep serving and keep doing because my God is basically a God who just says like, until I get beat you into submission, you're not righteous. No, we have a God who, who resurrected Jesus Christ from the grave and promises to do the same for us. And that puts us into what John Calvin calls a custody of hope. And I'm going to close with this. He writes this, though Christ offers us in the gospel a plenitude of spiritual blessings, yet the enjoyment of them always lies hidden under the custody of hope till we are divested of our corruptible body and transfigured into the glory of him who is our first fruits, our forerunner. So Calvin is saying that prayer and the faith that must come with it is a natural requirement if we anchor our faith, not simply in the cross, but in our resurrection. The resurrection for our body is future tense. It remains hidden and mysterious. And as a result, we walk, as Calvin says, like pilgrims at a distance from Jesus, hoping, praying, and seeking the wholeness that James promises us by practicing the way. And we will do it always with Christ in some way, totally present, but totally hidden, the now and the not yet. Let's do that together, because it's much easier to do that together than alone. Let's pray. God, I just pray for your, uh, I just pray that you would lift this community up. I know even just having to listen to me on a little laptop, uh, probably cutting out a little bit, uh, sniffling and stopping to blow my nose is something that brings a sense or maybe a feeling of a little bit of despair or hopelessness. It's not what you want. It's not your vision for how you want us to be together. So God, I just pray that, that you would give us the hope and the resurrection for each other. Pray that you would fight against the tendrils of despair that have entered each of our minds for very different reasons. Maybe health concerns, maybe safety concerns, maybe financial concerns. 
God, I know that our community, each person is dealing with one of those concerns. God, I know that it's nagging at us and that we have to fight it, but that we get to fight it with you. Help us bring those before each other. Help us celebrate and be grateful on Father's Day for families, for parents. Help us be grateful for roofs over our head and food on our table. Help us be grateful for good company, for, for beautiful rain that brings greenness. God, help us practice gratitude and lift up our happiness and praise to you in Jesus' name. Amen.